What happens when you put nine students of all ages, an expert instructor, and a teaching assistant together in a classroom with microphones for seven days? Well, we tried it, and we got nine amazing pieces of student radio. I'm Abigail Keel, the teaching assistant alluded to before, and today I'm going to give you a listen to some of the pieces produced at the Transom Traveling Workshop at the University of Missouri. The Missouri Audio Project, or MAP for short, collaborated with a radio organization called Transom. You'll hear a little bit more about MAP and what we're up to at the end, but first we'll hear about the workshop. Rob Rosenthal is a longtime radio producer and instructor. He joined MAP in early August to lead our students in creating radio stories. Our students began with just an idea and walked away with a finished radio piece, complete with skills in interviewing, writing, and producing for radio. Rob joins me by phone all the way from Woods Hole, Massachusetts. We've rigged up a fancy way of recording, so he sounds like he's right next to me. But that's just the magic of radio, folks. So can you introduce yourself for me, Rob? Holy smokes, I never do this. <laughs> I'm Rob Rosenthal. I'm a radio producer, but mostly what I do is teach. I teach for the Transom Story Workshop here in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Okay, great. And can you tell us a little bit about Transom, the organization? Transom's a website, primarily. It started in 2000, and it's really the go-to website online for information about audio storytelling. I think some of the best things that are on Transom are what we call manifestos. These are sort of like calls to action, a call to arms, things that are really inspiring. Essays from Ira Glass and people like Ira talking about why radio and radio storytelling and audio storytelling writ large to include podcasting and so on is so important and so rewarding and uh, such a such a valuable way to communicate. Transom provides radio instruction to students through workshops? Right. So we do two kinds of workshops. One of the workshops is eight weeks long, like you mentioned, uh, here on Cape Cod. People from around the world descend uh, on Woods Hole. Nine students usually is what we take, and they learn the ins and outs of radio production uh, over the course of eight weeks. We also do traveling workshops. These are one-week workshops. They're really intense and hit-and-run workshops to give people a basic understanding of how to produce a radio story. And we do those around the country. Right. Okay. And that's what we um, had you in Columbia for, right? Absolutely. What kind of students are normally in the workshop? Or you could even be more specific and talk about what kinds of students were at the workshop in Columbia. Typically, we get students uh, at the workshops who they're, they're people who have been bitten by the radio bug. They're just sort of living their lives normally, day to day, and then somewhere along the way, they're just infected. They hear a story, they become addicted to a particular podcast or a radio show, and they say to themselves, I need to do this. And they're typically people who have never had experience, and they just have to scratch this itch. They have to tackle this radio thing and find out if it's something for them. The students at the Missouri workshop were slightly different in that sense. I don't think we had a room full of people who were looking to change their lives necessarily and and and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I guess I would divide the group of students at Missouri at the Missouri workshop uh, into two categories. There were faculty members, people who teach at the university. Um, these are non-journalism instructors. These are people in the English department, uh, people who work in public health on campus, that sort of thing. They're they're just they they they're not looking to make a change and go into radio. 
but they have an interest in it. And then the other group of people who were in the class were students in the J school, in the journalism school. In fact, they're students who have already chosen radio um, as their avocation, the thing that they want to pursue. So they weren't necessarily looking for change. They'd already made that decision some time ago. They were looking for to experiment and, to, and for some new skills. So the first piece we're going to hear today is um, by a woman named Monica Hand. Monica is a Ph.D. student in the English department. She decided to do her piece about a genealogist that she knew um, named Tracy wilson Camp. So tell me a little bit about Monica on day one of the workshop and a little bit about Monica on day eight of the workshop. You know, Monica has never done radio ever. Uh, Monica's a poet by trade, I think. And... When Monica came in, I, you know, she had a good sense for story. She had a good sense, I think, for interviewing people. Um, but I don't think that technology, the recording gear, the microphones, the software we use, I don't think that that was something, I just don't think that was something that she does on a regular basis. And, you know, it was a long uphill road for her to take um, and to learn those sorts of skills. And what's amazing is that Monica stuck with it. Despite her frustrations, despite some of the difficulties and challenges, she just kept going and going and going. And I can't tell you how amazed I was at the transformation that she made. She went from zero and somewhat frustrated on the, uh, on the, um, on the technical side of things to producing her first radio story ever. Okay, so we'll hear a clip of Monica's piece, and you can hear the rest of it online at kbia.org. On South Providence, a very busy road in Columbia, Missouri, there sits a small cemetery. The plot is no bigger than a city block. Established in 1825 by George Jewell, it's one of the oldest cemeteries in Missouri. But most people drive by it without even knowing that it exists. Inside, there are 67 tombstones. Some are prominent with ornate designs, these are engraved with the names Jewel, Harden, Crockett, Jenkins, and Walter. In the southeast corner of the cemetery, there are 20 blank stones, the size of paperback books. They are said to be the burial markers for the Jewel family slaves. There are no names on these stones. Tracy Wilson Kleekamp is a genealogist. She specializes in the ancestry of African Americans in Missouri. When we arrive at the cemetery, it's hot and the cicadas are booming. This is the first time Tracy has been to Jewel Cemetery. When you come in and they have the marquee discussing what's here, there's no mention of these unmarked slave graves here. So this is how you whitewash history, right? It was very normal at the time to bury people of color and not not mark the stone you exclude people so their history seems irrelevant or unimportant in her work as a genealogist tracy sees herself as a puzzler so i ask her how would she solve this puzzle who is buried in these unmarked graves there's this belief i think in doing African-American history that you can't find out, that, it, that the information is elusive, and I don't believe that. What makes African-American genealogy challenging is that you are doing genealogy twice, following your family. You also have to follow the family that owned your family. 
So you have to know the genealogy of the slave-owning family as slaves because they were property. I ask for a moment of silence to pay our respects. To hear more of Monica's conversation with Tracy Wilson-Kleekamp, go to kbia.org. The next piece that we're going to listen to is by a woman named Meredith Turk. And Meredith uh, actually graduated from the journalism school here at the University of Missouri. So she came to the workshop with a mission. What was her mission, Rob? You know, I think her mission may have been similar to the other students who were journalism graduates. Um, and that was to try something new, to break out of of the sort of um, rigors um, that are imposed in journalism school. And I don't mean imposed in any negative way. There's a good reason why um, journalism school has rigors and is rigorous in the way that it is. But there's so much more you can do in terms of telling stories with sound that's not taught at journalism school. And I think that Meredith really, really, really wanted to try her hand at um, at sound art, at sound design, you know, playing with the sound in a way that is um, intriguing to the ear, but may also help to tell the story in its own way. And I think Meredith just sort of jumped into the deep end and created a kind of audio poem, an audio art poem that is unlike anything she'd ever produced before. Here's Meredith's piece. The moon was up in the sky. It looked like a big cookie. What should I do? Just... Just go about your day. Okay. My name is Fred Martz. I take part in the daily routine of the farm. Uh, The blue sky, the open sky... That means I get up every morning, seven days a week. I have, uh, right now, I have uh, two groups of cattle I check, uh, make sure they have uh, food and water, make sure their pastures are fresh. It looked like a big cookie. I was less than three years old, I'm pretty sure. threw up their heads and started running so they came back the cattle got spooked so they, they came back and now, now they came back looking at us and now they came back. back and i told him uh, oh, that looks like a big cookie and i remember going to feed that calf they still have some wild in them those, those 300 heifers or 400 heifers their number there's 55 cows 479 479 479 we don't make pets out of them they still have some wild in them We have a daughter, we have a daughter, we have a daughter. I was less than three years old, I'm pretty sure, and feeding a a calf over there. All mammals, uh, you have difficult births, and I mean very, very ill. What should I do, just... Uh, That's a hard question. Uh, It was early evening, and uh, the moon was up in the sky. It looked like a big cookie. They don't have calves with them now, but they will pretty shortly. Uh, You have difficult births. The fawns are birthed in in the spring, in the late spring. We experience it in our animals. Experience it, not 
in ourselves, maybe not in our we families for a long time, animals. but we experience it in our animals. So they came back for the first three days after they're separated. They're both bawling for each other. Even our human babies, we wean, you know. So they came back. And now, now they came back looking at us. And now they came back. back. It's a necessary thing that they have to be separated from their mothers. Uh, we have a daughter, we have a daughter, we have a daughter, we have a daughter. And, uh, and I mean very, very ill. Um, um. As far as death, Blue sky, the open blue sky, the, the, the open sky, blue sky, like big cookie, the blue sky, the open sky. The moon was up in the sky. It looked like a big cookie. Life and death is an expectation, and uh, we experience it in our animals. Experience it not in ourselves, maybe not in our we families for a long time, animals. but we experience it in our animals. I was refreshed in the morning and I could go for another day and that's really a lucky thing to have. The moon was up in the sky, the blue sky, like a big cookie. The blue sky, the open sky. Sorry to hear about your daughter. Well, that's that's part of life. We have a daughter, we have a daughter, we have a daughter, we have a daughter now that's very, very ill, and I mean very, very ill. Um, um, as far as death, you know, um, we deal with life and death every day. When my father was a potato and onion grower, uh, we kept a, a cow and a calf across the road, and I can remember going with him, and I... I was less than three years old, I'm pretty sure, and feeding the, a calf over there. The moon was up in the sky. The blue sky, the blue sky, the open sky. If you'd like to hear this piece one or two more times, go to kbia.org. Yulia Shukis is a professor at the University of Missouri in the creative writing department. Tell us more about Yulia's story and her subject. So here's the deal with Yulia. Yulia is a creative nonfiction writer, and she writes books. I mean, she writes essays too, but she's also written books. And get a lot of opportunity to write a lot of words if you're writing a book. In radio, the opposite is true. And so Yulia, like other people in the class, she 
you know, did what she needed to do. She learned the thing that might have been perhaps the most difficult for her, this type of writing, and and she, I think she excelled at it. I think this is a radio-ready broadcast piece um, from a first-time producer. And the other thing that she did really well is that she navigated a tricky subject matter. And I'm just going to leave it at that. We'll take a listen to a clip now. Shane Epping is a photographer. In his off hours, he volunteers in hospitals. The nurses usually contact him by text message, often in the middle of the night. They call him to take pictures, like this one, of a baby. This is Max. You can tell that he's a little more embryonic. I can remember holding Max. I mean, his body easily fit in the palm of my hand. For three years, Shane has been photographing stillborn babies and their families. He also documents infant deaths. Since that first photo of baby Max, he's taken pictures of 46 of these children, always in hospitals, always at the request of grieving parents. I've seen a lot of moms choose not to be photographed with the with the baby. And, you know, I think part of it is because of this, uh, this expectation that when we have our picture taken, we should be happy, right, that we should be smiling, and also that we should pose for the photographer. And people don't feel up to that, which I totally understand. But what they don't get, because they, they, they just have never had this happen, is and that's not what I do. Shane's sessions are quiet. He uses natural light, and he encourages parents to hold each other and their babies close. He often takes close-ups of hands, feet, or ears in black and white. Many of these images are sad. All are beautiful. None are gruesome or frightening. When the photos are ready, he sends them off to parents. It's a kind of a thankless gig, and, and that's what's great about it. Very rarely will I interact with them again, and they'll probably never even know who I am. The first request, the one to photograph Tiny Max, surprised Shane. He had no training in stillborn photography, and he was not yet a member of the nonprofit Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. It offers free photography to families who have lost a baby. Still, he packed his camera and went. It was just the baby, and I photographed baby Max as as best I could. And before I left the room, you know, I remember leaning over and whispering to Max and saying, you were loved, you were loved, you were loved. Shane has tattoos and longish hair. He's told me he has an abrasive personality, and I'd say that, yeah, there's a kind of hardness to him. In 2011, Shane and his wife Mary were expecting. They went in for a 20-week amnio. That's a test where fluid is drawn from the uterus. The test raised alarm bells. It showed that Shane and Mary's baby had trisomy 18. It's a chromosomal disorder similar to Down syndrome. Trisomy 18 babies have a 1 in 10 chance of making it to their first birthdays. Many die in utero. You know, I can remember coming home and Mary being on the floor in the kitchen with her elbows on her knees and her face in her hands and just crying and saying that she couldn't do it. But she did. Mary carried the baby. So we wanted to give the baby a chance, like no matter what. So what I would do is I would try to 
talked to the baby. We gave her a name. You know, we named her Faye. We treated her just like what we would do if the pregnancy had been totally normal. After 40 weeks of talking to and bonding with Faye, Mary went in for final tests. To hear the end of Yulia's piece, go to our website, kbia.org. Andrew Leland is a graduate student at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. But before that, he spent years as a contributing editor to The Believer, an arts and culture magazine. He began a podcast for the magazine called The Organist, which is about to air its third season. Even though Andrew hosts this podcast, he doesn't have a lot of experience producing his own stories. Tell us a little bit about working with Andrew. Andrew's never done an interview out in the field. Andrew's never collected ambient sound, the the sound of a space, uh, a room. Um, He's never done those sorts of things. He's never really written a script where there's narration and quote and narration and quote. He's never put together a story with um, sound from a movie. There's a brief moment in this piece that has some sound from a movie. He's never done any of these things before. So when we started with him on Sunday, he had never produced a radio story, like you said. And then by the end, he produced something that's clearly ready for broadcast. Let's take a listen to Andrew's piece now. Ragtag cinema isn't like a multiplex cinema. It's got weird popcorn fixings and couches. You can even drink a beer while you watch a movie. They also have something called the Guffman membership. You pay about $500 and you get free admission to any screening all year. Guffman members are hardcore. You can spot one at nearly every show. Diane and sometimes Desi and Donna and sometimes Lincoln. And um, that guy whose name I don't know that wears the vintage hats and shoes... And then that bicycle guy, he might be named Arthur. And there's another moviegoer. She stands out, a middle-aged woman with frizzy gray hair that flies out of her head like a cloud of debris. Okay, I'm Jan Goodman, and I'm a Guffman member of this ragtag cinema. And I live in Columbia. I just moved here at the end of April from Murray, which is good because now I can get here faster. I heard about Jan around town that she has a public access TV show where she plays the flute and reviews books. I'd also heard that she works at the city dump and that she never misses a film at Ragtag. She sees some of them five, even ten times. And since she comes so often, she has a favorite seat. These are the best two seats in the place. What's so great about these seats? They're good to sit in. Jan's pretty open, but there's a few things she wouldn't tell me, like where she's from. Uh, That's going to have to remain a secret. Before her obsession with movies, when she was young, Jan was fanatical about comics. She said that reading them was her way of resisting authority. Because you weren't supposed to. They were evil. You should have read some Sunday school book. In her 20s, she joined the Coast Guard. She said that she got kicked out before she finished her first tour. Well, I didn't get along with nincompoops. I've had a lifelong problem with nincompoopery. And the military's full of it. After the Coast Guard, she worked as a hospital janitor. Nincompoops. Don't flush a potato chip bag. It's going to get stuck at the first elbow. And somebody's going to have to get it out. She eventually made her way to Missouri, where she got a job at the Columbia Landfill. I weigh trucks. I would weather weigh a thousand commercial trucks than weigh one cash customer. Because they come out there having no idea what they're doing. And I have trouble being nice to nincompoops. As you can tell, Jan has issues with authority. 
and with people in general. But her relief is ragtag. Well, it's like the keep Austin weird motto. That's my job is the, the, to man the barricades to keep rural Missouri out. She doesn't have the same scorn for her fellow audience members that she has for the rest of the world. But she doesn't exactly feel solidarity with them either. Well, you don't have to talk to them. They just all sit in here and they eat their food. They watch the movie. They laugh at a few things. The thing that they've laughed at the most recently, I remember, is every time I was in here watching the preview of of me and Earl and the dying girl, and it'd get to the part where Earl talks to the cat and says, Want to fight? Didn't think so, punk-ass cat. They always laughed at that, every audience. They they really liked somebody talking to a cat and insulting the cat, and the cat didn't care because why would the cat care? I can't remember what I've laughed at. It wasn't the cat. Jan also says she doesn't cry. Sometimes my eyes water from sunscreen. But no, they don't really have sad movies in here. But even if she doesn't show any emotion, the front row of the theater, half full on a Monday night, is Jan's ideal refuge. Yes, it is. You come through the uh, corduroy curtains and, and you're away from it. You may come out the door and find the, the weather's changed a lot. I mean, sometimes you can hear thunder in here. Now, if there is a tornado, they'll come tell you there's a tornado. I mean, it's not a complete escape, but it's the best you're going to get. For the Missouri Audio Project at the University of Missouri, I'm Andrew Leland. All right, Rob. Well, thanks so much for not only instructing our workshop, but for talking with me today. Um, What can you say about the future of the Missouri Audio Project and the Transom Traveling Workshop? Well, first off, I would say that the Missouri Audio Project is a stellar idea. Um, This is the golden age. This is a ripe time uh, for the University of Missouri and the Missouri Audio Project to be thinking about audio and teaching people how to produce audio stories. And so since this first workshop uh, at the university was such a success, um, we are definitely talking about doing this again next year don't have any dates for you yet. We've got to figure that out. Um, But this time around, we're fairly certain we're going to open this to the public. All right. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Rob. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thanks for putting this radio show together. Thanks very much to all the students in our workshop. Hope Kerwin, Raymond Somerville, Joanna Hearn, Lisa Safran, Emerald O'Brien, Monica Hand, Meredith Turk, Andrew Leland, and Yulia Shukis. To listen to any of the pieces you heard today and to hear the pieces made by our other students, visit kbia.org. The Missouri Audio Project is the new home and platform for audio storytelling at the University of Missouri. It was made possible by Mizzou Advantage, the Murray Center for Documentary Studies, the Missouri School of Journalism, KBIA, the English Department, and the new Digital Storytelling Department at the University of Missouri. Want to hear more? Join us for a special event on September 3rd at Ragtag. We'll gather to listen to more student work and be joined by Jonathan Goldstein, who's a radio producer and creator of the show Wiretap. He's also worked for This American Life. We'll celebrate the launch of the Missouri Audio Project and share radio insight. This event is free and open to the public. For more information, visit our website at kbia.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Abigail Keel.